Welcome to the Something to Know On podcast, a short podcast for the Christian with a short attention span. And this is a crash course through the Old Testament, where we're breaking the Old Testament down section by section, book by book, to make it a little less intimidating and easier to process. And if you're a seasoned student of the Bible, well, just look at this as a refresher course. And I'm your host, Nate Vinio. This episode is part 10, an overview of the prophets. A story is told of two preachers talking about the altar call portion of a particularly awkward revival service. It was one of those 15-minute altar calls with 13 verses of Just As I Am. And nobody went down front despite every altar call trick in the preacher's playbook. The kids in the youth group were even contemplating going down to the altar just to take one for the team, just to bring the service to an end. But nobody manned up. In a private conversation with the older preacher, the younger preacher was bemoaning the lack of response by the people. He couldn't figure it out. He'd spent plenty of time in preparation. He knew the text, the context, the subtext, and the potential pretext. He had spent plenty of time in prayer, praying for God to move mightily in the meeting. The time of praise and worship was excellent. Church members had invited friends and family members to hear the fiery young preacher. The young preacher delivered a well-crafted sermon. It had a captivating introduction, culturally applicable points with acute biblical references posted on the multimedia screen behind him. His transitions flowed smoothly. His illustrations and jokes were proportionate and on point. His tone ebbed and flowed and kept from erring on the side of too monotonous or too loud. His inflection was perfect. And his conclusion was sheer power, sheer academic power, sheer cultural power. But nobody came forward to receive Christ, repent, rededicate their lives, or otherwise exhibit some commitment to change as a result of the sermon. All that preparation and effort and nothing to show for it after all the hype of this revival. The younger preacher wrapped up his complaint by saying something to the effect of, I don't get it. I know there were people there who needed to hear the gospel, and I believe I presented it to the best of my ability. I don't get it. Why didn't anybody come forward? The other preacher, a more seasoned, silver-haired preacher, leaned in and simply said in a sagely manner, Sometimes you got to get them lost before you get them saved. Again, his sagely advice was simply, sometimes you got to get them lost before you get them saved. I fear we live in a culture that has driven the church to focus solely on the love of God, the soft and compassionate and gentle side of the divine, so much so that people think that they can come and go as they please, that that is all that there is to the equation, that it's a choice that can be made on humanity's terms. And if God's a God of grace, well, then he can wait for me to finish sowing my oats. And if he's a God of love, then he can wait it out and love me then too. We live in a generation that thrives on this while being unable to see the inherent insult of the same behavior. And all of this is to the extreme avoidance of another part of God's character, that of his holiness 
and his justice. The only problem is that you cannot disconnect God's love for us from his holiness, that part of his essence that demands justice and a price to be paid for our sin. And when someone tries to address this or present this, or they're often labeled as judgmental or legalistic or being works-based or labeled a disturber of the peace, one who upsets the spiritual status quo or homeostasis of the moment. And if you doubt me on this, simply look at the prophets. It's nothing new. One of the most common misconceptions of the books of the prophets is that they are about judgment. And that would be right, but only half right. The truth of the matter is the books of the prophets are about hope and restoration and salvation too. Listen to me carefully when I say this. If God is talking, even if it's a tough word, it's a good thing. Ask Nineveh. The fact that God takes a moment to give them a warning is a sign of his love and concern for them. A lack of preaching about God's holiness and the consequences of our sin should be what scares people. That should flat out terrify people. The reality is that no matter which of the books of the prophets you look at, they all have these elements. They have the element of judgment and the element of hope and restoration and salvation. I love what Chuck Swindoll said about this, and keep in mind that if you don't know Chuck Swindoll, he's a master communicator of the gospel and a shepherd at heart, a pastor. And before that, he was a Marine, but I'm getting off target here. This is what Swindoll had to say about the combination of judgment and hope in the prophets, especially in Isaiah. Quote, Having read the book, one might wonder about the strong presence of judgment that runs through the first 39 chapters, when the theme is salvation. How can the two coexist? The presence of judgment indicates the necessity for salvation to occur. Before we can have salvation, we must have a need for it. And this is where the silver-haired sage preacher comment comes into play. Sometimes you got to get them lost before you can get them saved. And for the most part, this is the theme throughout the prophets. The names and the faces may be different, the timelines are different, the rulers are different, but the process is still the same. God's people are usually breaking the law, breaking God's heart, and there's a time of reckoning coming. And amid the reckoning, God still has his fatherly hand upon his people throughout the correction process. And no doubt there's final judgment, which thoroughly jives with God's holiness, but the desire along the way is that the understanding of what is to come brings a change in behavior and a change in heart. So what's the difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets? It's really simple. This is really deeply theological, I suppose, for some, but the major prophets, well, they wrote a lot, lots of chapters in their books. And the minor prophets, well, they didn't write a lot, not a lot of chapters in their books. The major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And these four authors account for five books listed in what are referred to as the major prophets, which I thought was an interesting detail that piqued my curiosity and my trivial pursuit mind. 
The first five books of the Gospels were written by four guys. Luke wrote his Gospel and the book of Acts. Also, Jeremiah writes his book, and with the help of a secretary named Baruch, and a shorter book, which is considered to be part of the major prophets, called Lamentations. By chapters, Lamentations should quite honestly be in the minor prophets, but based upon its authorship, it's lumped into the majors. So there's a your daily dose of Bible trivia there. Go figure. Anyhow, it'd also be good to mention here that sometimes people think of prophecy or the prophetic as apocalyptic or something like the end of the world or something relating to a message in the future, significantly far into the future, or foretelling the future, some might call it. The apocalyptic dynamic is pretty thick in Ezekiel in the last few chapters of Daniel, and the visions and descriptions initially seem pretty wild. But in addition to foretelling in relation to the future, prophecy is also about forthtelling or speaking God's word in a moment, in a present moment. In the same way that we see history in the books of the law or in section 1, and we see elements of poetry and wisdom in the history books or section 2, and elements of messianic prophecies in the Psalms, section 3, we also see elements of prophecy taking the form of history or storytelling in parts of the prophets, section 4 and 5. The words from God to Hezekiah are recorded and delivered by the prophet Isaiah in real time, and a few short chapters later, he's prophesying about the Messiah. The same type of thing happens in Jeremiah as he's dealing with the people of Israel that are in exile in real time. He's talking to them, he's talking to God, then he turns around and writes letters to them in Babylon. That's covered in Jeremiah 25 through 29. Then he turns around a few chapters later and he's prophesying about the new covenant that would be hundreds of years later in Jeremiah 31. In one set of chapters, both prophets are speaking of what God is saying in that moment to that group of people. And a chapter or two later, they're foretelling the future, one about the Messiah and the other about the new covenant. One last generalization I'll make about the prophets is to simply classify the prophecies in terms of what is judgment, what is messianic or new covenant related, and what is apocalyptic, that is relating to the total end of the world or the final judgment, a revelation kind of writing, if you will. In the history books, I mentioned how many years could pass between chapters of a book. In the prophets, that isn't so much the case as it is possible for one paragraph to be about judgment of Babylon years in the future, and the next paragraph to be about a completely different time frame, maybe a messianic time frame. And it's not uncommon for these time frames to bounce back and forth. I don't say this to scare or intimidate anybody. It's just one of those things that you will run into when you read through the prophets. This way, you won't be blindsided by it. As I've mentioned with the books of Job and Ecclesiastes, reading with a basic study Bible will help you point out some of these key details. It's sometimes difficult to know whether the prophet is referring to a current king or a future king or a future servant or savior or a judgmental event or a natural disaster. Additionally, it never hurts to hear other people teach on these books, but don't deny yourself the blessing of reading it for yourself. It may get thick from time to time, but a simple, easy-to-read version 
of a study Bible should be sufficient. And you'll be amazed at what God reveals when you get into His Word. And remember that sometimes you have to get people to realize how hopelessly lost they are before you proclaim how miraculously saved they can be. So let me give you a few easy tools for reading the prophets that should set you on a good trajectory for understanding what's being written. First, get a timeline and study the background of the prophet. I will include a link to a timeline in the show notes that could help. Pay close attention to two things on the chart. Notice who the king or kings were during the time of the prophet's writing. Notice what other prophets may have written books during the same time frame and see what other prophets may have said about the same time frame. Lastly, notice what other historical books are written during the same time frame. For example, Kings, Chronicles, etc. Just a hint here, the account of Hezekiah and Isaiah is recorded in both Kings and Isaiah. Second, as I mentioned before, be sure you have a good study Bible written in a version that you can easily understand. From a perspective of ease and understanding, I would suggest the NLT if you haven't got one dialed in yet. I would add that the message is pretty good at getting a visceral picture of what's being said. I don't think that I would ever write church doctrine based on the message translation, but don't discount its value. There are some versions that would cause you to completely miss the depth of emotion and angst in the prophets. Just be sure that you're reading a couple of translations to help keep you grounded. Third, use your study Bible to help point out what prophetic view is being used. That is to say, what is the prophet speaking to? Is it to the present audience? Is it to a future audience or a future event? Is that future event years down the road or millennia down the road? And lastly, a word of caution. The challenge in reading these books is not just understanding what is being said, but then knowing how to apply the principles to our lives. In my opinion, one of the most commonly misused scriptures in the prophets, and I think I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but I believe it would be Jeremiah 29, 11, which I'm sure most of you have heard or seen in some form of social media post or hanging on somebody's wall at their home. The key line in this verse is from God himself where he says, For I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you a future and a hope or some variation of that based upon translation, but you get the idea. And it's a true statement, and I believe it, as should you. The problem comes when people claim it as a promise that is based on a human understanding of two things, or based upon a current understanding of two things. First, what it means to prosper and to have a future and a hope, what that means and what that looks like. Secondly, understanding what kind of a timeline context the message is delivered in. Keep in mind that this verse is taken out of the center of a discourse where God is laying a foundation and laying an understanding for what's going on in the exile. And people take this one verse out of the middle of it and build a life on it, and it gets kind of dangerous when you do that. The truth of the matter is that God has already declared earlier in the chapter and verses before this that the people who hear this declaration will be spending 70 years in exile. It's a guarantee it will happen. He has promised it will happen. 
And most of the people hearing this message and hear this verse in Jeremiah 29, 11, will most likely die in Babylon. So to translate this and to apply it to our lives in some kind of a Pollyanna mindset would be grossly wrong. This isn't about our comfort and our well-being in the present. This verse is about the long game, that the training and the correction that will occur in a difficult setting, a 70-year exile with heathen captors, will produce fruit in the long run, something that far exceeds your lifetime, something that is far more important than your comfort. And this is why he states in the very next verse, quote, When you call on me, when you come and pray to me, I'll listen. In this 70 years of exile, what do you think they would have found if they would have spent their time seeking the Lord? Would they have prospered? Would they have had hope? Do you think God would have showed them things? Absolutely. Verse 11 is the goal, the promise. It's the ideal. Verses 12 through 14 is the step-by-step plan to accomplish it. And it really is a one step. Quote, call on me. Continuously call on me, no matter what your circumstances are or how long they last. Verse 11 is the what. Verse 12 is the how. So let's read the rest of verse 12 and then 13 and 14 in the message. Quote, when you come looking for me, you will find me. Yes, when you get serious about finding me and want it more than anything else, I'll make sure you won't be disappointed. God's decree. I'll turn things around for you. I'll bring you back from all the countries into which I drove you. God's decree. Bring you home from the place from which I sent you off into exile. You can count on it. End quote. But keep in mind that they're still looking at a 70-year exile. And to round this out and wrap it up, the part of this promise in Jeremiah 29 that too many people miss is that much of the promise rides on our shoulders to simply and persistently call out, go looking, and get serious about finding God. Not to sit back passively and wait for God to act, but to simply expend the energy of seeking Him despite our circumstances. That's why it's important to have a timeline, a study Bible, and a couple of versions that you can easily read from to keep us honest and on track and understanding Scripture for what it's intended to say. An accurate understanding of Scripture that makes you feel uncomfortable is far better than a slightly skewed understanding that gives you all sorts of spiritual warm fuzzies. In the weeks to come, I'm going to look at a few of the books of the prophets, but not all of them. Next week, I plan on digging into Isaiah, but to close out today's episode, remember that at the core of this study, this non-initiative, it's about gnawing on Scripture. It's the realization that life transformation happens in Christ as we get into the Bible at least four times per week, and there's, of course, no penalty for doing more than that, but statistically, bad behaviors and habits are nearly cut in half, good disciplines are nearly doubled simply by getting into the Word on your own. 
My heart is to simply take the edge off the potentially intimidating nature of such a big book. You have heard me say it before. Get into it and read it like a novel. It's telling a story. Get into it and let it get into you. Next week, we'll tear into Isaiah in more in-depth in as much as you can do an in-depth crash course study through 66 chapters in less than 30 minutes. But hey, we'll give it an honest shot here. And if you find these episodes worth sharing with friends and family, those who might be blessed by this content, please feel free to do so on your social media sites. And while you're at it, please take the time to rate and write a review. We'd sure appreciate that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Also, we have the online merch store with an expanded line of items now. There will be a link in the show notes, so please take a moment and check it out. And again, we appreciate your support. And until next week, God bless.